0: you're doing something where you are completely consumed with the mission and the chance that the engine might fail is the farthest thing from your mind and it fails without warning
1: you're listening to the rotary wing show a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew each episode we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way if you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to RotaryWingShow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes, just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 41 of the Rotary Wing Show. A big welcome if you're a new listener to the podcast. And there are a lot of you, as I've been seen a, a spike in download numbers and people signing up, to the website this month, so I'm really glad you found the show, and I promise I'll do my very best to make it worth your while. If you're an old hand, then welcome back too, as we keep trying to capture some of the stories and experiences from around the helicopter world. I've had a great week, hope you've had a great week, and let's get into the show. In episode 39, we had Pete Gillies talking about his first experiences of flying a helicopter back in the 1960s. That audio was captured by Doug Williams in Southern California who was lucky enough to train with Pete at Western Helicopters. Pete has just recently retired after clocking up over 18,000 helicopter hours in his career. He has an amazing amount of experience and a great way of telling a story. Doug has captured another interview with Pete Gillies that you'll hear today, and it's one that really drives home a message. So again, a really big thank you to Doug for going the extra mile to be able to get this audio and to share it with all of us. He deserves a heap of credit for this. Before we even Pete, some quick housekeeping and announcements. The competition to win a custom aviation drawing by Mark Vienendale is closing very soon, and I hope you can get an entry in. As a reminder, you need to go to the website rotarywingshow.com and leave a comment at the bottom of episode 39 and share a short note about your first helicopter experience. Only a small fraction of listeners have entered so far, so you have a really good chance to win. I'll use a random number generator to draw the winner. And they'll have a chance to be able to order a custom aviation drawing from aviation artist Mark Vienendahl, which we'll ship out to you. It's a really nice and unique prize that I think you'll be stoked with if you're the person who gets to win that. The competition closes Tuesday, 23rd of February, 2016 at zero hundred Hours UTC. There are links on the blog post to Mark's Instagram account, and you can check out many of his drawings there. And while you're on the blog post, you can also read some of the comments from other listeners. So, I'll just read out one here from Andy in the UK. Andy writes Great show. It's so refreshing to hear so many helicopter stories from around the globe. I'm a CH 47 instructor in the RAF, and the topics in your podcast fuel a lot of crew discussion on everything from performance to long lining tuna with a Chinook. And I'm guessing Andy's talking about episode 37 there, where we're talking with Moggy about uh, the tuna flying. Andy continues. From my first familiarization flight in the Gazelle to frontline Afghanistan Ops in the Chinook, the rotary world is a truly unique one in aviation. The passion for knowledge and experience is constantly updated when I hear the guest interviews and watch the associated videos. Excellent work and look forward to future shows. From Andy at 28 Squadron OCU. Hey, thanks Andy and a big shout out to all the lads and lasses at 28 Squadron OCU and everyone else that left a message. Incidentally, I've read elsewhere that 28 Squadron will be holding a celebration this April to mark the unit's centenary and uh, inviting all past serving personnel along to the day. So it's a pretty amazing achievement for 100 years in aviation for that unit. So that is on the blog for episode 39 at Rotary Wing Show. If you're driving or at the gym at the moment, don't forget to check it out when you get back in front of a computer. Did you pick the helicopter in the interview lead in sound clip for the last episode? It was, of course, the Bell 206 Jet Ranger. Well done if you nailed it, and have a go at today's clip. Auto rotations are a big focus in helicopter training. We spend quite a bit of time practicing them to get that initial license. Once we get out on the line and start working in a job, it could be a long time between chances to practice them. And for some reason, it really seems to scare the passengers, for one thing. Back in episode 19, Sean Coyle talks in detail about the height-velocity diagram. And energy in auto rotation, which makes it a great companion interview for what you're about to listen to. Pete starts off telling the story of a number of helicopter crashes and then spends some time focusing on the crucial actions immediately needed when entering auto rotation following a power loss. As Pete points out, we talk a lot about engine phase and singles in the resulting auto rotation, but there are a range of emergencies, even in a multi engine machine, where you might find yourself needing to enter auto. At the very least, I think you'll come away with a new respect for any low-rotor RPM situation and reinforce what your priorities have to be going into an auto-rotation entry.
0: It all started back in about 1975 when I saw an article in the Bell monthly publication called Rotor Breeze, and the article was uh, written by Ned Gilliland, who was a Bell test pilot at the time. The article was uh, titled something like, Hey, you rotor heads, read this. And it was a single column down the front page of this uh, monthly publication from Bell, which we got at Western Helicopters because we were a Bell service center. I read the article and the basic message was, hey, you're a helicopter pilot, keep the rotor in the green all the time. And it emphasized this in just one straight column, but there was no special reason. It just said, be sure you keep the rotor in a green all the time. Well, I thought this was a little redundant because it was sort of obvious that uh, that's what the rotor operating range uh, tells you, the green, keep the needle in the green. But why this article was written and what the emphasis was, I could not figure out. So I pick up the phone and called Bell Helicopter, introduced myself to Ned Gilliland, and said, Ned, what is this article about? I read it. We're a Bell Service Center. We've got 14 pilots here and a bunch of Bell helicopters, and I'd like to know what's behind this article. And the reply, I could almost hear his exact words, but with a long, drawn-out Texas accent, he said something like, "'Well, Pete, I'd like to tell you, "'but our legal department says I can't talk about it.'" And I remember being shocked by that, and I, just like in a Hollywood movie, I, I remember taking the phone away from my ear and looking at the phone uh, like they do in movies, as if to say, "'What?' put the phone back to my head and said, Ned, I don't understand what you're saying. What what are you trying to tell me? He said, well, Pete, like I said, I'd like to tell you, but our legal department says I can't talk about it. And I protested. I tried my best to get him to tell me why he wrote the article. But uh, he was very cordial, but he was very firm. He would not answer the question. So um, (laughs) I said, look is there a RPM or something below green green uh, where I should put a skull and crossbones sticker on our rotor tacks? Because we've got a 205A, we've got 6 bell PAL-47s, and a jet ranger and all that stuff. And if there's something that you should be telling me, tell me. And he said, well, I can't talk about it. Just be sure all your pilots... Uh, and I was the check pilot at the time of 14 pilots and said, just be sure that all your pilots keep it in the green auto time to your airport. Well, uh, what could I do? So I put this in the back of my mind, and uh, there it stayed with no connection to what he was really getting at. That was in 1975 or so. Uh, as time went on, I became curious about helicopter accidents, and uh, studied every case that uh, that I could uh, examine. Uh, we didn't have any wrecks, but uh, the industry was growing. A lot of us were doing very difficult work out in the field. There were a number of accidents. And uh, the next one that caught my attention was Los Angeles PD. I had an A-star, a, a, star, a 350B One, something like that, a B-1, and uh, the flight was uh, down the center street, down, down a uh, main street in downtown Los Angeles on a nice morning, it was a routine cruise, and the helicopter suffered a uh, engine, a a, uh, overrunning clutch failure, resulting in the engine overspeeding massively, and the helicopter was over a four-lane surface street in downtown L.A., broad daylight, light traffic, and as it descended toward the street, it began turning right, and it hit a lamppost on the way to crashing and burning in a parking lot. And I remember seeing the aerial views of that because it happened during the morning, and there were still some ENG ships up in the air, And it showed the accident scene, and I could not understand why the helicopter turned to the right and crashed in the parking lot, killing the pilot, the observer, and an unfortunate person who was standing in the parking lot. Made no sense at all that he didn't use the street to make a landing. I put that in the back of my mind. Not long after that, the San Bernardino County Sheriff uh, had a 500 that ran out of fuel as it was approaching the Riotto Airport at midnight. And the uh, helicopter uh, hit just short of the runway in light sagebrush. And the first thing that hit was the tail stinger, which was ripped off the bottom of the vertical stabilizer and was stuck in the ground in the sagebrush that was about two feet high. The next thing I noticed, oh, by the way, I had received a call in the middle of the night just after the accident from Captain Terry Jagerson, who was in charge of the unit at the time. And he said, Pete, I need you to come over at first light and look at the wreckage of what we have here. Uh, Before we move anything, I want you to see it. I need to know if you have an opinion as as to what happened. So at first light, like at 5 a.m., I showed up at the airport and walked out into the uh, into the uh, wreckage area with Terry, and every significant piece had a uh, identification flag next to it with numbers, and number one piece of wreckage was the tail stinger stuck in the ground. And then the wreckage field went on for what looked like 50 yards at least with pieces everywhere. And there sat the helicopter, upright, with a giant hole in the right side of the windshield, windscreen, the uh, tail stinger stuck in the ground, and then as I was standing there and looking into the rising sun and studying the evidence field, I noticed something very strange, and that was that the sagebrush was cut down at about a, Thirty-degree angle, sloping to the left, as though the helicopter was in a left turn at the time that it hit no, tail low, smacked in the ground, and then hit. I noticed the way the sagebrush was cut, and I did, I didn't understand what caused it, except it appeared the pilot was trying to make a left turn at the time, and so the blades cut it down just like a barber's uh, uh, shears. The the hole in the windshield was caused by the observer ejecting as the aircraft hit the ground just short of the runway. He passed through the rotor system somehow and was severely injured but not deceased. The pilot remained in the cockpit, and the uh, they had to remove him because of his injuries. He couldn't get out himself, but the observer had pitched through the windshield, taken the plexiglass with him, and uh, was, uh, was 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 uh, not hit by the rotor plates. I thought, wow, now that, that, that's amazing. How'd that happen? As we walked around the main wreckage, uh, Terry Jagerson uh, was just grumbling about the fact that the aircraft had run out of fuel. Potter had made, during the mission, had had made a mistake and done some orbits around a burning home for the Ontario Fire Department when he really should have been heading for Western for Riyato. He had low fuel light on, and by the time he got to Riyato, he had run out of fuel, and this was the end of a very poorly executed auto rotation. But I looked at the helicopter and I said, with a smile on my face, joking of course, I said, you know Terry, if you'd put some fuel in this thing and start the engine, you could actually fly it up over the wall right into the sheriff's uh, ramp. Why did I say that? Because the rotor blades looked great. They didn't look like they were injured at all. They were hardly wrinkled. Uh, yeah, the skids were smashed, the tail was smashed, but really it was all there, and it looked like you could start the engine, and sure, it'd be out of track and balance, but you could at least put it over the wall. I made a note of that. Okay. So I'm accumulating all this uh, all this uh, information, but not knowing what to do with it. The turning point was in 19... I think it was 1992. Uh, We had two law enforcement crashes within four months. The first one was Ontario Police Department 500E that had uh, had a 100-hour inspection, and the flight was at a nice day. Uh, All it was going to do was... uh, go up for a few minutes, uh, sign off the test flight, and then be released for service. The aircraft was full of fuel, had uh, all the mission equipment on it, searchlights, flare, blah, blah, and all that stuff. All it was going to do was go around the field and come back in. And in the right seat was the mechanic who had done the uh, inspection. The left seat, of course, had a regular officer pilot, a fellow we knew very, very well. And so they cranked up the helicopter on the south side of the main runway in Ontario, and a pilot asked for departure down the uh, south taxiway westbound. It was denied because there was a FedEx Heavy on the taxiway at the time, And the Ontario Tower said, no, you'll have to hold for a couple of minutes, and uh, uh, when that uh, FedEx has passed, then you can have the taxiway for takeoff. And the pilot uh, said, no, we'll just take a straight south departure from the ramp here, and uh, thank you and he was cleared for an immediate takeoff. Aircraft lifted up and was flew over the top of biz jets and other aircraft that were on the ramp, was heading straight south and uh, was approaching Mission Avenue, tall eucalyptus trees, four-lane surface street, uh, rush hour traffic in the afternoon. And at about 400 AGL, everyone, including the pilot and mechanic, heard a very loud boom. And with that, the aircraft engine had failed, and the aircraft, of course, started descending and it made a descending a left turn as it descended and uh, ended up hitting the ground very hard in the eastbound lanes of Mission Boulevard in with rush hour traffic between cars with the traffic. And it slid and slid and slid and slid for a long distance. It had broken its left landing gear. And so it was leaning on its left side and sliding down, and the landing gear was putting out a spray of sparks, and the fuel cell had ruptured. One of the two cells had ruptured, if not both. So when it came to a stop, it was on fire, big time. The traffic on both sides of the uh, of the uh, surface street came to a screeching halt. And as the uh, word is, the passerbys pulled the pilot and the mechanic out of the wreckage as it was uh, burning. And uh, they, were, uh, they survived with very, very serious injuries, very serious injuries. The aircraft burned to a crisp. The photos in the newspaper showed that... Uh, Uh, Well, yeah, uh, there's a burned-up helicopter. It didn't look like anybody could have survived inside of it, but that was not a problem. But the thing that caught my eye at the time was that, once again, the rotor blades uh, looked pretty good. Here this thing had crashed on its left side, hard enough to break the left landing gear, and yet the rotor blades, except for one, which was basically... Under the wreckage, the rest of them looked like you could take them off and put them on another ship and fly away. Everything was (laughs) covered with uh, soot, and a good portion of the aircraft was just burned away. What happened at that point was, well, we knew it was a maintenance flight, and so Bob Spencer, our training center manager, and I started pounding on the table at Western with uh, law enforcement uh, pilots especially, and saying, look, if the aircraft has just been worked on, don't take off over a populated area, over busy streets on your first flight. Something might not be right. Um, Stay over the airport. Wait until the FedEx-heavy taxis by so that if you have an engine for there, you can make some kind of a decent landing on the taxiway or runway. And just, just just think about that. Maintenance, it's people make mistakes, tools get left in the uh, helicopter, all kinds of things. The stories never end. Anyway, that was the problem. So we were pounding the table about test flights. Four months later, in the fall of that year, we're at the Rialto Airport. And uh, the last pilot to leave the airport, leave our hangar, Dennis McCall noticed as he drove away from our hangar, he saw an MD-600 departing the sheriff's facility at the Rialto Airport. It looked like a routine takeoff. It was uh, it was uh, late afternoon, and um, it was, I think it was in October. The aircraft picked up from the ramp, and Dennis watched it climb southwestbound and then turn south, and he turned north and drove off the airport at another uh, on another road. What he didn't know was within about 30 seconds after takeoff, an identical boom was heard by everyone, and the aircraft again at about 400 AGL, as recorded by Ontario Tower Mode C reception. The aircraft again starts a descending left turn, and makes a complete 180 as though the pilot was trying to get back to the airport. But the the descent was very steep, and the aircraft passed northbound between two houses and some trees. It didn't hit the houses, but it hit the trees, and the trees ripped the entire Notar tail off the aircraft. The aircraft was in a steep left bank, At the time, it hit a lawn and took out a huge divot. The divot was about four or five feet wide and maybe ten feet long, just like a giant golf club had taken out a divot. The aircraft smacked into the lawn bounced up over a sidewalk, not touching it at all, lands in the street northbound on the remains of its left landing gear, which digs into the street, and the aircraft now pivots around on its broken landing gear and is facing south, and it's on fire. And this is at about, I don't know, three or four in the afternoon. There's kids on bikes and uh, skateboards and a busy, busy little residential street, and... Miraculously, nobody on the ground was hit or hurt by anything. And the ship's on fire. The fire department at the Rialto Airport showed up very quickly, put the fire out, and extracted the crew. The fire was not as severe as the one that burned up the Ontario 500E. Okay, wow, well, here we are again, another maintenance-related thing. Had this aircraft been worked on? Yeah, it had just finished an inspection that day. One of the pilots at the uh, sheriff's facility uh, flew it around the Rialto airport and signed it off, and the crew on board at the crash was a duty crew, and once again, the aircraft full of fuel, heavy, and so forth. Okay, well, you can tell what happened at at our facility at that point. That's the second maintenance-related crash within four months. In both cases, the engines failed unexpectedly. What was the aircraft doing at the time? In both cases, the pilots were climbing out to go on a routine patrol. And a radar track from Ontario showed both pilots at about, 400 AGL and 50 or 60 knots in a climb. Okay, so uh, we were again on the, if it's been worked on, don't take off over anything but the runway, you know, climb up over the airport, fly around within gliding distance of the runway or taxiway until you are as sure as you can be that the aircraft is going to stay together. Okay, uh so it's late fall, and uh we had uh, I had collected all the photographs from the newspapers, had them in a folder there at western, and uh we were showing them to the pilots that came through for training for recurrency training, mostly law enforcement, and emphasizing the fact that a test flight should be a test flight with the idea that at any moment something may go wrong, and so Use your head. Stay close to an excellent landing area until you feel that the aircraft is okay. All right. So we had a a day there in November when we had, uh, I don't know, two or three pilots in there from government agencies, and Bob Spencer had uh, taken the manila folder with all the pictures, and he'd spread them out on this big conference table. And they were all over the table, uh, pictures of the wrecks of both of these uh, law enforcement ships. So it's late fall. It's cold and windy outside. Everybody ends up going home from our hangar and offices except for me. I stayed there. And finished up some stuff in my office. And as I closed the door to the office and started walking across the hangar, I looked through the big window into the conference room, and I saw the lights were still on. I saw all these papers scattered across, all these pictures scattered across the uh, table. I was tempted to just walk on out and go home, but... I said to myself, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'll go in there and I'll put all this stuff back in the folder. I don't want to leave a mess here. I walked in the conference room. and I can still see myself standing along the side of the table looking down, and I'm trying to figure out I'm going to collate all these uh, clippings. I'm going to put them all in the right order. And I'm looking left and right at all the pictures of the Ontario ship burned up and the uh, San Bernardino County ship burned up. And I'm starting to reach for one, and I'm going to put it with this and that and so forth. And suddenly, for the first time ever in my whole entire life, I had the proverbial light bulb go off in my head. It was the strangest, scary feeling suddenly, I knew what happened. I knew what had caused both accidents. And I, I, I don't know if I stopped breathing or if my heart stopped at that time, but I can remember standing there. I was It was an out-of-body experience, sort of. I thought, holy cow, I know exactly what happened. And the fact was that the pilot's had not applied aft cyclic at the time the uh, engine quit. They had gone for airspeed. I felt this was an absolute certainty, but I couldn't prove it. However, both pilots, although horribly injured, did survive and uh, whoever was in the other seat survived also. The observer in the case of the MD 600 and the mechanic in the case of the MD 500. I immediately called Bob Spencer who had gone home and he was a very close friend of the Ontario pilot. I had him call the pilot at home. The pilot was uh, still very much in a recovery stage and never did return to duty flying. And I said, Bob, I want you to ask John McLeek exactly what he remembers about the moment the engine failed. What did he hear? What did he do? And I said, I just need, I need you to get a, a statement from him. And Bob did that and replied to me that when the engine failed, John immediately put the collective all the way down and immediately nosed over. To gain airspeed because at the time it happened, his best estimate was there were fifty or sixty knots, and he wanted to he wanted to get airspeed and so he did that, and the next thing you know, the aircraft is making a left hand turn all the way to ground contact, and there was absolutely nothing he could do to change that the pilot of the m d six hundred had been interviewed by the captain the day of the MD-600 wreck south of the Rialto Airport in the hospital in intensive care. And the pilot said basically exactly the same thing. They were climbing out, the engine failed, pitched down, nose over to get and maintain airspeed. And uh, the it appeared that the pilot had purposely made a left-hand turn to get back to the airport. No way could he have possibly reached the airport, but the left-hand turn was uh, uh, obvious evidence that the pilot had uh, tried to return to the airport. No one realized that the left-hand turns had nothing at all to do what the, what the pilot wanted to do. There were plenty of much better landing areas within gliding distance of both helicopters. But the pilots had absolutely no control at all. They didn't realize that. The aircraft were turning left in both cases because the rotor RPM had dropped below the green to a point where no matter what the pilot did, the rotor RPM was going to continue down to zero. That is a stunning fact, and it It is absolutely positively true. Why the left turn? Because as the rotor RPM was slowing in the case of both helicopters, retreating blade stall entered the picture, which we normally think of as a... Don't go faster than this. If you're this, if the DA is this high and you weigh this much, uh, limit your airspeed to X knots. Because if you go past that, the retreating blades are going to start stalling, and the aircraft is going to pitch up and roll to the left or to the right, depending on which way the rotor turns. We always associate VNE with going too fast when the uh, aircraft is too heavy for the DA, it's at. The one item that's not shown on the V&E curve, the one parameter that is never mentioned is rotor RPM. It's assumed that the rotor is turning at normal flight RPM, and you go faster and faster and faster, and sure enough, the aircraft starts to pitch up and roll one way or another. Very easy to demonstrate in the 500 Cs that we had for years at Western, where you could get up a nice warm day at five, six thousand feet, and you could get into to a VNE very easily, and the cyclic would start to shake and shake more and shake more, and the aircraft was start to pitch up and roll, and you could play with it right there. It's very easy to uh, sense and to fix. But in this case, with the rotor RPM dropping below the green to a point which the manufacturers will not identify, and it does vary depending on DA, aircraft weight, blah, 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 all many, many factors, but there's a point that is not on the rotor tack and really doesn't need to be on the rotor tack, is a point where if the rotor RPM gets to this point or below, there is nothing the pilot can do in the cockpit, nothing at all to reverse the situation. The rotor will continue descending in RPM to zero, and if the aircraft is high enough, and if the rotor can be turned backwards on the ground during a free flight, The rotor will then start turning backwards before the aircraft strikes the ground. The only exception to this is that any type aircraft that have a clutch like a Hughes 300 or a Robinson or some of the aircraft where you have a clutch that you engage, and if you walk out to the aircraft on the flight line and the clutch is engaged, you can't turn the rotor backwards. But anything like a turbine aircraft with a free turbine engine or a Bell 47 with a centrifugal clutch or anything like that, if the engine quits, the rotor will turn backwards. And so what happens is that you'll see the aircraft descending, the pilot did not catch, did not apply aft cyclic in time, the aircraft descending, people on the ground will tell you that the rotor was going very slow or it had stopped, but it will turn backwards if this happens high enough. There is no recovery. that aircraft will turn to the right or to the left, depending on which way the rotor turns. So when I realized what caused the accidents, I requested of uh, Terry Jagerson... Or the whoever was in charge at the time, I said, I would like to speak to all of the sheriff's pilots to tell them what happened to their MD 600 and how to avoid that happening to themselves. It was a touchy subject because the the implication was the pilot made a mistake. He shouldn't have, uh, he should have immediately applied aft cyclic. Hey, this was a non-subject at the time. Nobody talked about that. It was always in the, especially in the uh, rotorcraft flight manuals. It was the emphasis was on airspeed, airspeed, airspeed. In the case of the MD uh, five hundred, the flight manual clearly said. Get the pitch down and then pick an airspeed uh, that uh, will either give you a max glide or minimum rate of descent, 80 knots or 60 knots, indicated airspeed. There's never any mention about auto-rotating at a slower airspeed or a faster airspeed. It's always about airspeed and the training, the check rides, all emphasize nailing this airspeed and maintaining it to the flare. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The uh, the training the flight manuals never mention applying aft cyclic for any reason except to control airspeed uh, during a descent, and this is a tragic situation. I want to stop right now and talk about the uh, a stunning uh, realization between airplanes and helicopters. Take your typical airplane. Let's take, a, well, a Cessna Skylane or something, and just, just go up and cruise along 1,000 AGL. Nice cruise speed. Aircraft trimmed out. Pilot's touching the controls, but there's nothing to do. It's smooth air, and you're just enjoying the view. The engine stops suddenly. The propeller is stopped in front of the windscreen. What does the pilot have to do at that point? Absolutely nothing. He can take his hands off the controls, cross his arms, And just sit there and watch what happens. The nose drops instantly. The aircraft starts descending, picks up airspeed. The wings begin to lift more. The nose rises. The aircraft then stalls again gently. And the aircraft does a series of uh, porpoise-type maneuvers all the way to the point where the pilot finally needs to take a hold of the wheel and pick the best place to make the best landing he can. That's it. Let's take the same scene in the beautifully trimmed-out helicopter, same same thing, cruising along1,000 AGL, and the engine suddenly stops. The pilot has probably less than one to two seconds to react, and the reaction in the book is right, but it is wrong in priority. The emphasis in the training and in the flight manuals is to immediately bottom the pitch and go for an airspeed uh, that has been uh, uh, prescribed in the flight manual for either men ready to set or best light or something in between. You'd be amazed at the number of pilots out there, helicopter pilots, who believe that if the aircraft is not within that bracket of speeds, it's not in an auto-rotation and there's, uh, so, there's a crash just waiting for them. Pilots do not realize that the aircraft will auto-rotate just fine at any airspeed, in any direction, including flying backwards, as long as the rotor RPM is in the crane. The pilot's initial action must be applying aft cyclic and getting the pitch down, and you can't take time to analyze whether or not your engine is, has failed, why are all the lights on, why is the horn blowing. The time it takes to decide whether you have had an engine failure is time that you may wish you never spent the the, uh, re, the the reaction has to be just as fast as putting the pitch down, if not faster. Get the nose up, get air coming up through the rotor blades, because putting the pitch down by itself never stops the rotor RPM from dropping. It just slows down how rapidly it's falling. That's all. The more power that the aircraft, the more power that the Pilot is pulling at the time the less time he or she has to react and get the get the cyclic back. This is uh, the the basis behind uh, what I termed cyclic back, which is an awkward uh, term. I, you can say aft cyclic. There's lots of ways of stating the same thing, but the results are dramatic, and the timeline is so tight that it has to be a reaction, not a thought process. You can't take time to analyze if you truly have had an engine failure or driveline failure. In the case of the Los Angeles Police Department, to A-Star, the over clutch failed. And this is even a, uh, a bigger challenge, one that we cannot duplicate in training at all because when the overrunning clutch fails in powered flight the engine instantly goes into an overspeed condition and we are taught time and again to do everything we can to avoid overspeeds of engine and rotor so the engine fails in the A star the engine now suddenly has no load goes to a very high RPM Meanwhile, the important thing, which is rotor RPM, is dropping like a rock. But the pilot sees an overspeed and is trying to manage the overspeed, not realizing that the problem is not the overspeed. If the engine's damaged by overspeed, that's that's nothing. You can replace the engine. Meanwhile, the rotor blades, the rotor blades are slowing down and reaching that point from which there is no recovery. And in the case of the Los Angeles BD, A Star. Retreating blades stall caused the aircraft to turn to the right during the descent, and uh, the pilot was unable to make any kind of a uh, landing at all. It was just along for the ride. The equivalent, and this is, I think, a very, very uh, important uh, point, the equivalent to an airplane pilot, the equivalent of to an airplane pilot of the helicopter pilot not getting the cyclic back in time, the equivalent in an airplane would be one wing falling off in flight. One wing falling off in flight. Take that Cessna we're flying along in. If you're flying along all trimmed out and the engine quits and the left wing falls off, guess what? The aircraft's going to roll to the left and spin all the way down to the ground. There's no recovery. That's exactly the equivalent to the helicopter pilot of not getting the cyclic back in time, not the pitch down, but the cyclic back in time to catch the rotor RPM. As I mentioned a moment ago, putting the pitch down does nothing at all to stop the decrease in rotor RPM, nothing at all. It just slows it down until and unless the cyclic is applied in time. The rotor RPM will continue descending. The only way to stop it is to apply F-cyclic, period. A wonderful gentleman that uh, is a uh, representative of Robinson in Europe demonstrates in an uh, R-22 the effectiveness of applying F-cyclic. As I remember, he goes, level flight in R-22, goes as fast as he possibly can in level flight, just throttle idle, doesn't touch the collective, but begins applying aft cyclic smoothly, keeps the rotor in the green, for seven seconds before he then lowers the pitch and continues the auto rotation. just by applying aft cyclic, he can keep the rotor in the green. A dramatic demonstration and proof of what I'm saying here. So, this is what aft cyclic is all about. I'd love to have some nice catchy term uh, to replace cyclic back, but that's what I've called it ever since it, it uh
1: After you discovered AF-Cyclic, how did you change your training or how did you, what did you do differently when you
0: approached pilots? You know, Doug, when I, uh, long before I discovered uh, Cyclic back or AF-Cyclic, I remember flying around Rialto doing a stage check of one of our student pilots. Uh, Bob asked me to take him up and give him a stage check and see how he was doing during the training. And we were, the, the pilot had already been doing uh, power recovery auto rotations in our 300. And uh, so I asked him to demonstrate uh, one of these. And uh, when he uh, chopped the throttle, or when I chopped the throttle, he immediately pushed forward on the cyclic, immediately we had less than 1G. And I thought, wait a minute. And this is long before I connected a uh, rotor RPM, pushing forward, blah, blah, with, uh, with, uh, with the uh, cyclic back situation. It was uncomfortable to me. Uh, less than 1G. And I didn't, you know, and I thought, okay, I don't, I don't like this. I don't like the. This. this is the way we're training our primary students. Um... Let's change that. So I spoke to Bob, and I said, okay, from here on out, don't accept pushovers at the start of auto-rotation. Have them apply aft cyclic so that we don't have negative Gs. Little did I realize that that was the beginning of turning our training program around so that we emphasized applying aft cyclic, not because I knew anything about... Low rotor rpm and the rotor coming to a stop, not at all just just it just didn 't feel right and uh, I, I, it was just based on that i just didn 't like that i 'm dual rated I flew airplanes for years before I could even pronounce helicopters, and uh, it just didn 't feel right the uh, pushing over like that negative g's it didn 't show up during a practice auto it didn 't show up as a rotor rpm dropping out of the green or anything. But it just didn't feel right. Uh, I didn't realize back then what the significance of what I was asking to be changed. So we changed the training program to emphasize to the pilot, when to start the auto, bring the cyclic back, as well as bringing the pitch down and maintain a, a, an attitude, a, a normal attitude, and it has been taught. There are many, many instructors uh, around the world who have always emphasized a smooth entry to an auto no pitch over not nothing less than 1g and that's wonderful the problem is and i and i and this is where we have a conflict you train to get your rotorcraft certificate you train to the pts you train to very highly defined uh, maneuvers that must be done properly, or you don't pass a check ride. Cyclic back is aimed at the other end of the spectrum, and that is pilots like myself who have never had a surprise engine failure in flight. Never. They've flown for thousands of hours and years and years. And if they've had emergencies, it's never been a total uh, cold turkey engine or driveline failure when you're least expecting it. How many thousands of times have I made flights where the last thing in the world I would think would happen would be an engine or driveline failure? You're not prepared for it. Your head's outside the cockpit. You're involved in something. You're a law enforcement pilot. You're going around and around on a scene concentrating over the observer's shoulder to keep him on target, something like that. You're doing egg work, you're doing sling work, you're doing seismic, you're doing forest fires, you're doing something where you are completely consumed with the mission and the chance that the engine might fail is the farthest thing from your mind. And it fails without warning. Now, at that point, I think 99 out of 100 professional pilots are going to be caught by surprise. You're not you're not ready for that. Uh, there may be, and you say, well, uh, what if I'm in a climb like these PD pilots? You don't want me to to uh, uh, pull the cyclic back. And the answer is, yes, I do. Pull it back. I don't care what you're doing. It, it, the only time you wouldn't pull the cyclic back is if you're in a climb with zero airspeed. You don't want to fly backwards. But you need to get the cut. Anything that sixty knot climb that both of these police ships are doing, perfect. Bring the cyclic back, catch that rotor RPM now. You want to, and at that point, if the if you've caught it and you're in the green, anywhere in the green, if you'd like to go down vertically, descend vertically, wonderful. Helicopters love to autorotate straight down backward sideways. It doesn't matter. Oh, but you say, if I a vertical auto, you can build up uh, vertical descents of over 3,000, 4,000 feet per minute. Yeah, so what? So the aircraft is flying. It's like an airplane that has two wings all the way to the ground. You have a flying machine. The, uh, the, what I love to do is take pilots out who have the, enough experience to appreciate what's happening and show them how a helicopter auto-rotates at other than 60 knots. It is so much fun. And if you could ask the helicopter if it's happy during an auto-rotation, it would say, yes, it would say to you, yes, uh, hey, Pete, you know, if I, I'm the helicopter and if you give me a choice of any kind of a flight mode, which one would I like the best? I'm the helicopter, and my answer is I love autorotations. I love autorotations when the engine has quit completely because the engine actually is a pain in, I'll use a French word here, a pain in the ass to the rest of the helicopter. The engine vibrates, drips, smokes the tail, boom, heat, blah, 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 twists on all the shafts and everything. The engine is a pain, the helicopter is happiest when it's in a auto-rotation and the engine is offline, completely gone. That's If you could fly like that all the time, the helicopter would love it. That's the best time. Helicopter is fully controllable. If the engine's in the green, the helicopter is happy. It'll do anything you want. Turn left, turn right, stop, back up, as long as you're willing to continue to descend. Well, you say, okay, uh, this is a good uh, reason then to have a twin-engine helicopter because now the possibility of having both engines fail is very remote. And so that's one way of uh, avoiding this cyclic back issue. Right? And the answer is wrong. Because one of the most popular twin-engine helicopters in the world is the Bell 212-412 UH-1N series. Fine, fine machines powered by the famous, reliable Pratt & Whitney PT uh, 6 twin pack, an outstanding twin engine power plant. The problem is that those two engines drive the main rotor through one drive shaft. And when that drive shaft fails in flight, you suddenly go from two engines to no engines, along with a massive engine overspeed, depending on how much power you're pulling. The only way to avoid tragedy in a situation like that with a 212-412 UH-1N or S58T is to immediately apply aft cyclic and put the pitch down. You can't take time to determine if you have lost one engine or what's happened, and the fact that the drive shaft seldom fail. Is even more important because it's something that pilots rarely experience. When you go to the uh, flight safety or similar sim operations and they fail the drive shaft in the simulator, you find out quickly that the only way of saving the aircraft is to apply F cyclic and pitch down. If you don't, and if you take the time to try and troubleshoot, that's the end of your flight. That's probably the end of your career. That's the background on cyclic back.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the difference in auto-rotation of a helicopter that has the engine running and you're pulling pitch at the bottom versus one with complete engine stall, the difference in response?
0: Oh, you're talking about a training auto versus, okay, yeah, well, that's the other, that's another lie that we've had to deal with for all these years. Um, the question here is, what's the difference in the actual landing between a helicopter that has had a total engine failure and one where you're just doing a practice auto with the engine idling? This applies to the turbine aircraft. It applies to all of the free turbine engines, not the Alouette three Llama Gazelle where you have a fixed shaft turbine with a centrifugal clutch. Now, I'm talking about everything else that's turbine power that has a free turbine, gas producer, and power turbine. When you go out, let's take a typical, let's take a 206B, any Jet Ranger model, go up and do some auto rotations. Line up with the runway or taxiway, 60 knot, just like the book says. Chop the throttle to idle. You might look at the uh, dual tack, might see a little needle split there. And during the descent, as long as the rotor tack needle is separated from the engine, from N2, the auto rotation is being done strictly by aerodynamics up through the rotor system. The engine is just idling away, it's of no help to you at that point. You're making a nice descent, everything's lined up perfect. Check it right there with you, watching carefully. Here comes the flare, and this is going to be a touchdown auto, so you're not going to roll the throttle in at the bottom. You enter the flare, the aircraft is in a beautiful flare, slowing down nicely, and now the flare is going away, and it's time to level the aircraft, ease the pitch in, and put it on the ground gently usually with some forward uh, ground speed, unless there's a very strong wind going. And you look so good. The Bell's rotor system is outstanding, two-blade system is outstanding, and you look great, and the checkbot signs you off. What you don't realize is as you leveled and began to ease the pitch in, you were dragging down the rotor tack and sitting right below it during the descent was N2, the gas, uh, the uh, power turbine sitting there uh, with the needle split and as you start pulling pitch to level and cushion and you drag N2 down to, in this case, 90%, which is the bottom of the green in the Jet Ranger, as it hits that point, You're pulling it down with the rotor RPM. At that point, the engine is delivering to you about 15 horsepower. It's helping keep that rotor RPM going. This is easily shown by looking at the Allison Engine uh, technical publications, which show you that... The engine will give you about 15 horses if you'll drag it down to low rotor RPM in a jet ranger or similar. How about the rest of the pitch pull, take it all the way to skids touching. As you pull the rotor RPM down even more toward the uh, 6 o'clock position on your dual tack, the engine is trying to help you the gas flow that takes that keeps the gas producer operating has to pass through the power turbine on its way to the exhaust. And as you drag the engine all the way down, putting the ship on the ground, the horsepower from that idling engine peaks at 35 horsepower. 35 horsepower is more than it takes to drive the average vehicle down a level highway at 60 miles an hour. It's very significant. It's always there, as long as the engine's idling. Always there. In the case of the uh, 500 series, low green rotor gives you 17 horsepower. So when you are practicing max glide autos by following the Rotorcraft flight menu, and you're dragging the dual-tack down to low rotor RPM with an idling engine, 17 horsepower is helping you, and your descent looks like you're in an airplane, like a Cessna, uh, on a nice glide. Not... you. you and that's why we stopped teaching that maneuver at Western years ago. When I told Bob Spencer, "This is ridiculous. We're giving pilots. We're showing them how to extend the glide, showing them the glide path. But with the engine gone, it's not there. You start pulling the rotor RPM down, it with no engine idling behind it, and all of a sudden the rotors at low green, and your descent is much deeper." I went to. Uh, MD in about 1989 or 1990 to the factory school and we did some testing over there that proved my point about the idling engine helping to the point where MD added two notes to their rotorcraft flight manual for the 500 warning or cautioning the pilots that they should not expect the same performance in an auto rotation with the needles joined uh, with an idling engine, as with no engine, and that uh, those two notes were added to all the five hundred manuals because of the accident that I had at Western years ago, where I discovered this, which at the time we called the best kept secret, which was the assistance the idling engine was giving during practice maneuvers when the needles were not touching. N2 and NR touching is not a problem. It's when you start dragging N2 down, dragging it down by pulling pinch. That's where horsepower is being transferred to the rotor system. And in almost every case of uh turbine training with free turbine engines, where the engine is allowed to idle all the way to touchdown. You have this benefit that is not obvious at all to the pilot. Uh, It makes the pilot look good, it makes the rotor system look good, then you take that engine away completely and the helicopter is entirely different. So I've kind of scrambled all this together, but that's the essence of uh, cyclic back and uh, the assistance the idling engine gives you during training maneuvers. What should we change with this? The big change I want is I want to see cyclic back in print. I want to see it emphasized. I want to see the flight manuals modified so that they say, engine failure, apply aft cyclic and lower the pitch as quickly as possible. I want aft cyclic to be first Priority-wise, it is first. Again, putting the pitch down just slows down how fast the is dropping. It never stops it. It never turns it around. Your life, your aircraft depends on the rotor never reaching the point where it continues down and you can't stop it. There is absolutely nothing you can do. And again, twin-engine aircraft, fine. Aircraft run out of fuel occasionally, too. In the case again of the twins with a single drive shaft, hey, that drive shaft is the equivalent of a single engine. If that fails, you you have uh, you know you have no power to the rotor system. So I could go on and on about this. I hope that I've covered enough. Uh, to make the point, it should be in every helicopter training program publication and flight manual, including from the R-22 and the G-2 Capri, everything from there on up. There is nothing more important than applying aft cyclic the moment you have an engine or a driveline failure, period. That comes first and has to be a reaction, not a thought process.
1: Uh, what do you tell pilots when they do have an engine failure? Is there a specific set of things to do? Like, do you say, what do you tell them? Should they should, how should they react immediately?
0: Yeah, this is Pete's uh, emergency procedure, usable in any and all helicopters. <laughs> Flying along, doing any kind of mission at any kind of speed except a, a hover. Uh, engine fails, driveshaft fails, something like that. Cyclic back and pitch down without thinking about it. You can never hurt the helicopter by doing that, period. Cyclic back and pitch down. Second step, pick a place to land. Third, make that spot. And it doesn't matter what you have to do. And be sure that when you pick a place to land, it is too close. Too close. You can handle too close so easily because, as I said earlier, in an auto-rotation, with the rotor anywhere in the green, the helicopter will do anything you want to do. You have to back up, go sideways, turn around, look left, look right, whatever. If, If you have altitude enough to do it, the ship's happy. It's really happy. Pick a pressure line and make sure it's too close. What do we do in training when you're going to take a check ride or you're being taught by a CFI? And you're going to pick the the point where you're going to enter the auto. You're looking ahead. You're at 500 AGL. You're at 60 knots or whatever the book says, and the uh, you're being trained and judged on how accurately you can time the entry so that the power recovery is roughly where it's supposed to be. Right? We all learn that way. I'm not advocating changing that at all. We all have to learn to fly from zero time and I, I'm uh, at this point. <laughs> I'm again. I'm looking at the old timers that have been around for years and have never had to deal with an emergency, and suddenly they have got it, and they don't remember what to do or how to do it. Uh, Come on, there are a lot of pilots that are in the sim all the time or training and and tightly regulated type flying, sure. But for every one of those type pilots that are sharp, sharp all the time, there's 20 pilots out there that can't possibly conceive of what an engine failure is going to do to them. And they're in the mountains, they're over the water, they're everywhere. Okay, pick a place to land. Make sure it's too close and make that spot. If the rotor is in the green and you make that spot, the landing is going to happen, period. Oh sure, when we're doing training autos, we like to make nice landings, touchdown autos, nice landings to a smooth, hard surface. We're trying to avoid damaging the aircraft in a training environment because, hey, it costs money to fix it, and uh, this is a bad situation. So a good CFI will not allow a student to make a bad, damaging landing. You roll the power on and go around and tr- keep trying it again, and you try and nail these airspeeds and descents and when to start your turn and all this stuff. And, oh, by the way, that reminds me turning turning in a real autorotation, you've picked a place to land, and it's too close. Wonderful. You're going to overshoot? Stop the aircraft. Back it up. Do whatever you have to do. Twist, turn, whatever to make that spot. Now, in making aggressive turns, you might have a rotor overspeed. Wow, okay. Now, if this is a check ride, and you allow the rotor to overspeed. And if I'm a Czech airman, I'm going to flunk you. I don't want to see you exceed red line high or low. You should be better trained. Okay? It's bad. An overspeed in the rotor system technically requires an inspection after you land. All right. In a real autorotation, there is no upper red line. There is no upper red line. Get used to the fact it's gone. If you have a what you would normally call an overspeed, that's not a problem. When was the last time you heard about a helicopter throwing a rotor blade off because of RPM? It doesn't happen. It, overspeeds occur all day, every day, all over the world, in one place or another, training or real world or whatever. Overspeeds happen in training, unacceptable. In the real world, The only red line that you need to be aware of is the bottom of the green because right below that somewhere is the end of your career period and that of anybody with you or maybe on the ground because you are now part of a falling object and there's not a thing you can do about it and it's going to turn one way or another. And in turn, and finally, if you're high enough when this happens, the aircraft may not even descend vertically, uh, level. It's gonna, can pitch, roll, depending on the aircraft you're flying, the CG, the door configuration, external configuration, everything else. You just, you're, you're, that's it. That's all. All you can hope is you'll land in a haystack or something.
1: I don't know about you, but I could listen to Pete Gillies talk about helicopters all day. You just can't help but feel like you're soaking up helicopter lore and arming yourself with background knowledge that might just make all the difference one day should something happen you have to react on the spot. You can often hear something over and over again and, and think you really know it, and then sometimes you hear it described in just a slightly different way, and it fires off new connections and associations. And I just find that happening with me when, when I hear Pete talk. I hope you got a lot out of it, and if there's anything there that you might think saved someone's life one day, then it makes all this worthwhile, and please do share it around. Big kudos again to Doug Williams for getting today's audio with Pete. We all owe him a beer if you ever bump into him in in California. And by all means, if you have anything to add to what Pete has been saying, then please do join in the conversation on the show notes on the website for this episode. You'll also see a video in the show notes that is taken on a phone of Pete giving an impromptu talk about some of the things in this interview and what looks like it's on the side of a stage at an expo in 2013. It goes for about eight minutes, and the comment from off-camera at the end of the video says, this is the best stuff I've ever heard in 20 years of flying. If you want to get more from Pete, watch the video over on the website. It's been another long episode, so let's close it up. The helicopter sound in today's episode was the Sikorsky S-58 It was the piston predecessor that the British Westland Wessex was adapted from. And 28 Squadron RAF from the start of the episode actually operated the Wessex from Hong Kong as a nice little tie-in there. This episode has been sponsored by trainmorepilots.com where you can get online marketing support ideas for your flight school or aviation company. It's trainmorepilots.com Please do get your entry in for the custom drawing competition as soon as you can before that closes on Tuesday you'll need to leave a comment on the bottom of episode 39 at rotarywingshow.com. I'll be announcing the winner in the next episode. While you're there, sign up for the email list so you get show updates and alerts when new episodes go out. Next week, we'll be back with you with an interview on the Spider Tracks real-time tracking system. So all the way from sunny Brisbane in Australia, get out there and make it a great week.